This is the SFF Audio Podcast. Today's podcast is a reading of Dig Me No Grave by Robert E. Howard. It's read by Robertson Dean, and it comes to us courtesy of Tantor Media. That's Tantor.com. And their collection, The Horror Stories of Robert E. Howard. Join us for our discussion of it afterwards. Dig Me No Grave The thunder of my old-fashioned door-knocker, reverberating eerily through the house, roused me from a restless and nightmare-haunted sleep. I looked out the window. In the last light of the sinking moon, the white face of my friend John Conrad looked up at me. "'May I come up, Kiroan?' His voice was shaky and strained. "'Certainly.' I sprang out of bed and pulled on a bathrobe as I heard him enter the front door and ascend the stairs. A moment later he stood before me, and in the light which I had turned on I saw his hands tremble and noticed the unnatural pallor of his face. "'Old John Grimlin died an hour ago,' he said abruptly. "'Indeed. I had not known that he was ill. It was a sudden, virulent attack of peculiar nature, a sort of seizure somewhat akin to epilepsy. He has been subject to such spells of late years, you know.' I nodded. I knew something of the old hermit-like man who had lived in his great dark house on the hill. Indeed, I had once witnessed one of his strange seizures, and I had been appalled at the writhings, howlings, and yammerings of the wretch who had groveled on the earth like a wounded snake, gibbering terrible curses and black blasphemies until his voice broke in a wordless screaming which spattered his lips with foam. Seeing this, I understood why people in old times looked on such victims as men possessed by demons. Some hereditary taint, Conrad was saying. Old John doubtless fell heir to some ingrown weakness brought on by some loathsome disease, which was his heritage from perhaps a remote ancestor. Such things occasionally happen. Or else, well, you know, old John himself pried about in the mysterious parts of the earth— and wandered all over the East in his younger days. It is quite possible that he was infected with some obscure malady in his wanderings. There are still many unclassified diseases in Africa and the Orient. But, said I, you have not told me the reason for this sudden visit at this unearthly hour, for I notice that it is past midnight. My friend seemed rather confused. Well, the fact is that John Grimlin died alone, except for myself. He refused to receive any medical aid of any sort, and in the last few moments, when it was evident that he was dying, and I was prepared to go for some sort of help in spite of him, he set up such a howling and screaming that I could not refuse his passionate pleas, which were that he should not be left to die alone. "'I have seen men die,' added Conrad." wiping the perspiration from his pale brow. But the death of John Grimlin was the most fearful I have ever seen. He suffered a great deal. He appeared to be in much physical agony, but this was mostly submerged by some monstrous mental or psychic suffering. 
The fear in his distended eyes and his screams transcended any conceivable earthly terror. I tell you, Corowan, Grimlin's fright was greater and deeper than the ordinary fear of the beyond shown by a man of ordinary evil life. I shifted restlessly. The dark implications of this statement sent a chill of nameless apprehension trickling down my spine. I know the country people always claimed that in his youth he sold his soul to the devil, and that his sudden epileptic attacks were merely a visible sign of the fiend's power over him. But such talk is foolish, of course, and belongs in the Dark Ages. We all know that John Grimlin's life was a peculiarly evil and vicious one, even toward his last days. With good reason he was universally detested and feared, for I never heard of his doing a single good act. You were his only friend. And that was a strange friendship, said Conrad. I was attracted to him by his unusual powers, for despite his bestial nature, John Grimlin was a highly educated man, a deeply cultured man. He had dipped deep into occult studies, and I first met him in this manner, for, as you know, I have always been strongly interested in these lines of research myself. But in this, as in all other things, Grimlin was evil and perverse. He had ignored the white side of the occult and delved into the darker, grimmer phases of it, into devil-worship and voodoo and Shintoism. His knowledge of these foul arts and sciences was immense and unholy, and to hear him tell of his researches and experiments was to know such horror and repulsion as a venomous reptile might inspire. For there had been no depths to which he had not sunk, and some things he only hinted at, even to me. I tell you, Corowan, it is easy to laugh at tales of the black world of the unknown when one is in pleasant company under the bright sunlight, but had you sat at ungodly hours in the silent, bizarre library of John Grimlin and looked on the ancient, musty volumes and listened to his grisly talk as I did, your tongue would have cloven to your palate with sheer horror as mine did, and the supernatural world would have seemed very real and near to you as it seemed to me. But in God's name, man, I cried, for the tension was growing unbearable, come to the point and tell me what you want of me. I want you to come with me to John Grimlin's house and help carry out his outlandish instructions in regard to his body. I had no liking for the adventure, but I dressed hurriedly, an occasional shudder of premonition shaking me. Once fully clad, I followed Conrad out of the house and up the silent road which led to the house of John Grimlin. The road wound uphill, and all the way, looking upward and forward, I could see that the great grim house perched like a bird of evil on the crest of the hill, bulking black and stark against the stars. In the west pulsed a single dull red smear where the young moon had just sunk from view behind the low black hills. The whole night seemed full of brooding evil, and the persistent swishing of a bat's wings somewhere overhead caused my taut nerves to jerk and thrum. To drown the quick pounding of my own heart, I said, Do you share the belief so many hold, that John Grimlin was mad? We strove on several paces before Conrad answered, seemingly with a strange reluctance. But for one incident— 
I would say no man was ever saner. But one night in his study he seemed suddenly to break all bonds of reason. He had discoursed for hours on his favorite subject, black magic, when suddenly he cried, as his face lit with a weird, unholy glow, "'Why should I sit here babbling such child's prattle to you? These voodoo rituals, these Shinto sacrifices, feathered snakes, goats without horns, black leopard cults, bah! Filth and dust that the wind blows away, dregs of the real unknown, the deep mysteries.' mere echoes from the abyss. I could tell you things that would shatter your paltry brain. I could breathe into your ear names that would wither you like a burnt weed. What do you know of Yogg-Sothoth, of Cthulhu's, and the sunken cities? None of these names is even included in your mythologies. Not even in your dreams have you glimpsed the black cyclopean walls of Koth, or shriveled before the noxious winds that blow from Yugoth. But I will not blast you lifeless with my black wisdom. I cannot expect your infantile brain to bear what mine holds. Were you as old as I, had you seen, as I have seen, kingdoms crumble and generations pass away, had you gathered as ripe grain the dark secrets of the centuries? He was raving away his wildly lit face scarcely human in appearance, and suddenly, noting my evident bewilderment, he burst into a horrible, cackling laugh. "'God!' he cried, in a voice and accent strange to me. "'Methinks I've frightened ye, and certes it is not to be marveled at, since ye be but a naked salvage in the arts of life, after all. Ye think I be old, eh? Why—' Ye gaping lout, ye drop dead were I to divulge the generations of men I've known. But at this point such horror overcame me that I fled from him as from an adder, and his high-pitched diabolical laughter followed me out of the shadowy house. Some days later I received a letter apologizing for his manner and describing it candidly, too candidly, to drugs. I did not believe it, but I renewed our relations after some hesitation. "'It sounds like utter madness,' I muttered. "'Yes,' admitted Conrad, hesitantly. "'But, Carowan, have you ever seen anyone who knew John Grimlin in his youth?' I shook my head. "'I have been at pains to inquire about him discreetly,' said Conrad. He has lived here, with the exception of mysterious absences, often for months at a time, for twenty years. The older villagers remember distinctly when he first came and took over that old house on the hill, and they all say that in the intervening years he seems not to have aged perceptibly. When he came here he looked just as he does now, or did up to the moment of his death, of the appearance of a man about fifty. I met old von Burke in Vienna, who said he knew Grimlin when a very young man studying in Berlin fifty years ago, and he expressed astonishment that the old man was still living, for he said at that time Grimlin seemed to be about fifty years of age. I gave an incredulous exclamation, seeing the implication toward which the conversation was trending. 
Nonsense. Professor von Burke is past eighty himself, and liable to the errors of extreme age. He confused this man with another. Yet as I spoke, my flesh crawled unpleasantly, and the hairs on my neck prickled. Well, shrugged Conrad, here we are at the house. The huge pile reared up menacingly before us, and as we reached the front door, a vagrant wind moaned through the nearby trees, and I started foolishly as I again heard the ghostly beat of the bat's wings. Conrad turned a large key in the antique lock, and as we entered, a cold draft swept across us like a breath from the grave, moldy and cold. I shuddered. We groped our way through a black hallway and into the study, and here Conrad lighted a candle, for no gas lights or electric lights were to be found in the house. I looked about me, dreading what the light might disclose, but the room, heavily tapestried and bizarrely furnished, was empty save for us two. Where, where is it? I asked in a husky whisper, from a throat gone dry. Upstairs, answered Conrad in a low voice, showing that the silence and mystery of the house had laid a spell on him also. Upstairs in the library, where he died. I glanced up involuntarily. Somewhere above our head, the lone master of this grim house was stretched out in his last sleep, silent, his white face set in a grinning mask of death. Panic swept over me, and I fought for control. After all, it was merely the corpse of a wicked old man who was past harming anyone. This argument ran hollowly in my brain, like the words of a frightened child who is trying to reassure himself. I turned to Conrad. He had taken a time-yellowed envelope from an inside pocket. This, he said, removing from the envelope several pages of closely written time-yellowed parchment, is, in effect, the last word of John Grimlin, though God alone knows how many years ago it was written. He gave it to me ten years ago, immediately after his return from Mongolia. It was shortly after this that he had his first seizure. This envelope he gave me, sealed, and he made me swear that I would hide it carefully and that I would not open it until he was dead, when I was to read the contents and follow their directions exactly. More, he made me swear that no matter what he said or did after giving me the envelope, I would go ahead as first directed. Tor, he said with a fearful smile, the flesh is weak, but I am a man of my word, and though I might, in a moment of weakness, wish to retract, it is far, far too late now. You may never understand the matter, but you are to do as I have said. Well? Well? Again Conrad wiped his brow. Tonight, as he lay writhing in his death agonies, his wordless howls were mingled with frantic admonitions to me to bring him the envelope and destroy it before his eyes. As he yammered this, he forced himself up on his elbows, and with eyes staring and hair standing straight up on his head, he screamed at me in a manner to chill the blood. And he was shrieking for me to destroy the envelope, not to open it, 
and once he howled in his delirium for me to hew his body into pieces and scatter the bits to the four winds of heaven. An uncontrollable exclamation of horror escaped my dry lips. At last, went on Conrad, I gave in. Remembering his commands ten years ago, I at first stood firm, but at last, as his screeches grew unbearably desperate, I turned to go for the envelope, even though that meant leaving him alone. But as I turned, with one last fearful convulsion in which blood-flecked foam flew from his writhing lips, the life went from his twisted body in a single great wrench. He fumbled at the parchment. I am going to carry out my promise. The directions herein seem fantastic and may be the whims of a disordered mind, but I gave my word. They are, briefly, that I place his corpse on the great black ebony table in his library with seven black candles burning about him. The doors and windows are to be firmly closed and fastened. Then, in the darkness which precedes dawn, I am to read the formula, charm, or spell, which is contained in a smaller, sealed envelope inside the first, and which I have not yet opened. But is that all? I cried. No provisions as to the disposition of his fortune, his estate, or his corpse? Nothing. In his will, which I have seen elsewhere, he leaves estate and fortune to a certain oriental gentleman named in the document as Malik Tus. What? I cried, shaken to my soul. Conrad, this is madness heaped on madness. Malik Tus, good God, no mortal man was ever so named. That is the title of the foul god worshipped by the mysterious Yezidis, they of Mount Alamut the Accursed, whose eight brazen towers rise in the mysterious wastes of deep Asia. His idolatrous symbol is the brazen peacock, and the Mohammedans, who hate his demon-worshipping devotees, say he is the essence of the evil of all the universes, the Prince of Darkness, Ahriman, the Old Serpent, the veritable Satan. And you say Grimlin names this mythical demon in his will? It is the truth. Conrad's throat was dry, and look, he has scribbled a strange line at the corner of this parchment. Dig me no grave, I shall not need one. Again a chill wandered down my spine. In God's name, I cried in a kind of frenzy, let us get this incredible business over with. I think a drink might help, answered Conrad, moistening his lips. It seems to me I've seen Grimlin go into this cabinet for wine. He bent to the door of an ornately carved mahogany cabinet, and after some difficulty opened it. No wine here, he said disappointedly, and if ever I felt the need of stimulants, what's this? He drew out a roll of parchment, dusty, yellowed, and half-covered with spider-webs, Everything in that grim house seemed, to my nervously excited senses, fraught with mysterious meaning and import, and I leaned over his shoulder as he unrolled it. "'It's a record of peerage,' he said. "'Such a chronicle of births, deaths, and so forth, as the old families used to keep in the sixteenth century and earlier.' "'What's the name?' I asked. 
he scowled over the dim scrawls, striving to master the faded, archaic script. G-R-Y-M. I've got it. Grimlin, of course. It's the records of old John's family, the Grimlins of Toad's Heath Manor, Suffolk. What an outlandish name for an estate. Look at the last entry. Together we read, John Grimlin, born March 10th, 1630. And then we both cried out. Under this entry was freshly written, in a strange, scrawling hand, Died March 10th, 1930. Below this there was a seal of black wax, stamped with a strange design, something like a peacock with a spreading tail. Conrad stared at me speechless. All the color ebbed from his face. I shook myself with the rage engendered by fear. It's the hoax of a madman, I shouted. The stage has been set with such great care that the actors have overstepped themselves. Whoever they are, they have heaped up so many incredible effects as to nullify them. It's all a very stupid, very dull drama of illusion. And even as I spoke... Icy sweat stood out on my body, and I shook as with an ague. With a wordless motion, Conrad turned toward the stairs, taking up a large candle from a mahogany table. It was understood, I suppose, he whispered, that I should go through with this ghastly matter alone, but I had not the moral courage, and now I'm glad I had not. A still horror brooded over the silent house as we went up the stairs. A faint breeze stole in from somewhere and set the heavy velvet hangings rustling, and I visualized stealthily taloned fingers drawing aside the tapestries to fix red, gloating eyes upon us. Once I thought I heard the indistinct clumping of monstrous feet somewhere above us, but it must have been the heavy pounding of my own heart. The stairs debouched into a wide, dark corridor in which our feeble candle cast a faint gleam which but illuminated our pale faces and made the shadows seem darker by comparison. We stopped at a heavy door, and I heard Conrad's breath draw in sharply as a man's will when he braces himself physically or mentally. I involuntarily clenched my fists until the nails bit into the palms. Then Conrad thrust the door open. A sharp cry escaped his lips. The candle dropped from his nerveless fingers and went out. The library of John Grimlin was ablaze with light, though the whole house had been in darkness when we entered it. The light came from seven black candles placed at regular intervals about the great ebony table. On this table, between the candles, I had braced myself against the sight. Now, in the face of the mysterious illumination and the sight of the thing on the table, my resolution nearly gave way. John Grimlin had been unlovely in life. In death, he was hideous. Yes, he was hideous even though his face was mercifully covered with the same curious silken robe which, worked in fantastic bird-like designs, covered his whole body except the crooked claw-like hands and the bare, withered feet. A strangling sound came from Conrad. "'My God!' he whispered. "'What is this? 
I laid his body out on the table and placed the candles about it, but I did not light them, nor did I place that robe over the body, and there were bedroom slippers on his feet when I left. He halted suddenly. We were not alone in the death room. At first we had not seen him as he sat in the great armchair in a farther nook of a corner, so still that he seemed a part of the shadows cast by the heavy tapestries. As my eyes fell upon him, a violent shuddering shook me, and a feeling akin to nausea racked the pit of my stomach. My first impression was of vivid, oblique yellow eyes, which gazed unwinkingly at us. Then the man rose and made a deep salaam, and we saw that he was an Oriental. Now when I strive to etch him clearly in my mind, I can resurrect no plain image of him. I only remember those piercing eyes and the yellow, fantastic robe he wore. We returned his salute mechanically, and he spoke in a low, refined voice. Gentlemen, I crave your pardon. I have made so free as to light the candles. Shall we not proceed with the business pertaining to our mutual friend? He made a slight gesture toward the silent bulk on the table. Conrad nodded, evidently unable to speak. The thought flashed through our minds at the same time that this man had also been given a sealed envelope, but how had he come to the Grimlin house so quickly? John Grimlin had been dead scarcely two hours, and to the best of our knowledge no one knew of his demise but ourselves. And how had he got into the locked and bolted house? The whole affair was grotesque and unreal in the extreme. We did not even introduce ourselves or ask the stranger his name. He took charge in a matter-of-fact way, and so under the spell of horror and illusion were we that we moved dazedly, involuntarily obeying his suggestions, given us in a low, respectful tone. I found myself standing on the left side of the table, looking across its grisly burden at Conrad. The Oriental stood with arms folded and head bowed at the head of the table, nor did it then strike me as being strange that he should stand there, instead of Conrad, who was to read what Grimlin had written. I found my gaze drawn to the figure worked on the breast of the stranger's robe, in black silk, a curious figure, somewhat resembling a peacock and somewhat resembling a bat or a flying dragon. I noted with a start that the same design was worked on the robe covering the corpse. The doors had been locked, the windows fastened down. Conrad, with a shaky hand, opened the inner envelope and fluttered open the parchment sheets contained therein. These sheets seemed much older than those containing the instructions to Conrad in the larger envelope. Conrad began to read in a monotonous drone which had the effect of hypnosis on the hearer. So at times the candles grew dim in my gaze, and the room and its occupants swam strange and monstrous, veiled and distorted like an hallucination. Most of what he read was gibberish, it meant nothing, yet the sound of it and the archaic style of it filled me with an intolerable horror. To ye contract elsewhere recorded, I, John Grimlin, 
hereby swear by ye name of ye nameless one to keep good faith. Wherefore do I now write in blood these words spoken to me in this grim and silent chamber in ye dead city of Koth, whereto no mortal man hath attained but me? These same words now writ down by me to be read over my body at ye appointed time to fulfill my part of ye bargain, which I entered into of mine own free will and knowledge, being of right mind and fifty years of age this year of 1680 A.D. Here beginneth ye incantation. Before man was, ye elder ones were, and even yet their Lord dwelleth among ye shadows, to which, if a man set his foot, he may not turn upon his track. The words merged into a barbaric gibberish as Conrad stumbled through an unfamiliar language, a language faintly suggesting the Phoenician, but shuddery with the touch of a hideous antiquity beyond any remembered earthly tongue. One of the candles flickered and went out. I made a move to relight it, but a motion from the silent Oriental stayed me. His eyes burned into mine, then shifted back to the still form on the table. The manuscript had shifted back into its archaic English. And ye mortal, which gaineth to ye black citadels of Koth, and speaks with ye dark lord, whose face is hidden, for a price may he gain his heart's desire, riches and knowledge beyond counting, and life beyond mortal span, even two hundred and fifty years. Again Conrad's voice trailed off into unfamiliar gutturals. Another candle went out. Let not ye mortal flinch, as ye time draweth nigh for payment, and ye fires of hell lay hold upon ye vitals as the sign of reckoning, for ye prince of darkness taketh his due in ye end, and he is not to be cozened. What ye have promised, that shall ye deliver. Organtha ne Shuba. At the first sound of those barbaric accents, a cold hand of terror locked about my throat. My frantic eyes shot to the candles, and I was not surprised to see another flicker out. Yet there was no hint of any draught to stir the heavy black hangings. Conrad's voice wavered. He drew his hand across his throat, gagging momentarily. The eyes of the Oriental never altered. Among ye sons of men glide strange shadows forever. Men see ye tracks of ye talons, but not ye feet that make them. Over ye souls of men spread great black wings. There is but one black master, though men call him Satanus, and Beelzebub and Apollyon, and Ariman, and Maliktus. Mists of horror engulfed me. I was dimly aware of Conrad's voice droning on and on, both in English and in that other fearsome tongue, whose horrific import I scarcely dared try to guess. And with stark fear clutching at my heart, I saw the candles go out, one by one. And with each flicker, 
as the gathering gloom darkened about us, my horror mounted. I could not speak. I could not move. My distended eyes were fixed with agonized intensity on the remaining candle. The silent Oriental at the head of that ghastly table was included in my fear. He had not moved nor spoken, but under his drooping lids his eyes burned with devilish triumph. I knew that beneath his inscrutable exterior he was gloating fiendishly. But why? Why? But I knew that the moment the extinguishing of the last candle plunged the room into utter darkness, some nameless, abominable thing would take place. Conrad was approaching the end. His voice rose to the climax in gathering crescendo. Approacheth now ye moment of payment. Ye ravens are flying. Ye bats wing against ye sky. There are skulls in ye stars. Ye soul in ye body are promised and shall be delivered up. Not to ye dust again, nor ye elements from which spring life. The candle flickered slightly. I tried to scream, but my mouth gaped to a soundless yammering. I tried to flee, but I stood frozen, unable even to close my eyes. Ye abyss yawns, and ye debt is to pay. Ye light fails, ye shadows gather. There is no god but evil, no light but darkness, no hope but doom. A hollow groan resounded through the room. It seemed to come from the robe-covered thing on the table. That robe twitched fitfully. O oh, wings in ye black dark! I started violently. A faint swish sounded in the gathering shadows. The stir of the dark hangings? It sounded like the rustle of gigantic wings. O oh, red eyes in ye shadows! What is promised... What is writ in blood is fulfilled. Ye light is engulfed in blackness. Ya koth. The last candle went out suddenly, and a ghastly unhuman cry that came not from my lips or from Conrad's burst unbearably forth. Horror swept over me like a black icy wave. In the blind dark I heard myself screaming terribly, then, with a swirl and a great rush of wind, something swept the room, flinging the hangings aloft and dashing chairs and tables crashing to the floor. For an instant, an intolerable odor burned our nostrils. A low, hideous tittering mocked us in the blackness. Then silence fell, like a shroud. Somehow Conrad found a candle and lighted it. The faint glow showed us the room in fearful disarray, showed us each other's ghastly faces, and showed us the black ebony table. Empty. The doors and windows were locked as they had been, but the Oriental was gone, and so was the corpse of John Grimlin. Shrieking like damned men, we broke down the door and fled frenziedly down the well-like staircase, where the darkness seemed to clutch at us with clammy black fingers. As we tumbled down into the lower hallway, a lurid glow cut the darkness, and the scent of burning wood filled our nostrils. The outer doorway held momentarily against our frantic assault, then gave way, and we hurtled into the outer starlight. 
Behind us the flames leaped up with a crackling roar as we fled down the hill. Conrad, glancing over his shoulder, halted suddenly, wheeled and flung up his arms like a madman, and screamed, "'Soul and body he sold to Malik Tus, who is Satan, two hundred and fifty years ago. This was the night of payment, and, my God, look, look, the fiend has claimed his own!' I looked, frozen with horror. Flames had enveloped the whole house with appalling swiftness, and now the great mass was etched against the shadowed sky, a crimson inferno. And above the holocaust hovered a gigantic black shadow, like a monstrous bat, and from its dark clutch dangled a small white thing, like the body of a man, dangling limply. Then, even as we cried out in horror, it was gone, and our dazed gaze met only the shuddering walls and blazing roof, which crumpled into the flames with an earth-shaking roar. Hi, I'm Jesse. I'm Tom Ome. Hi, I'm Mr. Jim Moon. And we're going to be talking about Dig Me No Grave by Robert E. Howard. There's no Conan in the story. No Conan. No, this is one of his many non-Conan stories. He he wrote a lot of stuff, and this is uh, I don't know if this is our first non-Conan story as a podcast uh, by Howard, but it's uh, it's one of the first ones I read that wasn't a Conan story. So I got it in a collection called Cthulhu: The Mythos and Kindred Horrors. Uh, I guess it came out in the middle 90s or so and uh, it had a lot of really cool stories that's actually how i got into uh lovecraft as well as through through howard and he sort of mentions i think Cthul- is it cthulhu gets a mentioned or something related to cthulhu gets a mention in this this story uh it doesn't mention cthulhu city Cthulhu's, well yeah close or something mm. yeah um, but uh, I, I like this story because it is it's it sort of combines everything that has um, I don't know it has it's sort of it's it's a Lovecraftian story but done in the Howard style. It's it's um, it's got his own sort of uh, polish on it, which I think is he I think he's really good at dressing up the scenery. But if you look anywhere away from where he's pointing, uh, you can see he's doing it really on the cheap. <laughs> he does research very cheaply, right? <laughs> he just asks, you know, three or four questions. What is a cool-sounding city in Asia? Uh, and he looks up some city that might be in Asia or might not be in Asia, and he writes that down and says, I'm using that. Whereas Lovecraft seems to be, you know... If he if he hasn't researched it, you know, very deeply, then he's going to make it up so deeply that it's going to it's going to feel like it it's real. Um, if if Robert E. Howard were a uh, movie maker, his scenes, his sets would be, you know, all the money would be on the screen, and you know, no time researching in foreign lands or, you know. No need to go to uh, exotic locales. Actually, just 
you know, film on the back lot and make it look as best you can because it's not, it's not quite as well researched as <laughs> when, when you start putting the names together, you say, well, that's not exactly right. Malakus. I don't think that's a very Asian sounding name. Do you? No, I mean, I did try and look it up. I must confess and drew a blank <laughs> in both real, real mythology and in Cthulhu mythos literature. I think it, it didn't catch on anyway. It's like it's not Asian. It's it's got to be. Uh, it sounds more Middle Eastern or something. Mm. You know, Afghani or something of that. But it is it so, is a real mismatch, a mishmash of uh, names and references. Because although you've got a lot of kind of Lovecraftian stuff bandied around about mentions of demon elder gods you know nothing about and right. the city of Koth. At the same time, it's quite. It's a basic satanic pact story. Mm-hmm. Um, it's uh, Faust, sorry. Mm, yeah, yeah. Right. Um, it's the the backstory is he's he's the the main character has has made a deal with a demon to live uh, a couple hundred extra years, and finally it's come come to get its payment, which I guess is just his body, which is kind of lame. Maybe his soul as well. <laughs> I was like, damn, I can make that deal. <laughs> but uh, but other than being evil, as far as I know, you're not evil, Mr. Jim Moon. Um, <laughs> you are most like the uh, the guy that, you know, in this story, the, the dead man. The man who's dead in all the scenes. Uh, who's lying on the table. You are most like the dead man. You've got lots of books, and you've read lots of stuff, and you've got a, a parlor and a cool... <laughs> wallpaper right <laughs> um it, it's it's funny like the people who who read lovecraftian style stories they tend to you know revere books in the same way that lovecraft's characters revere books digging up old old manuscripts and well maybe not manuscripts old printings and mm. and uh you know <laughs> i don't know Caring about their mantelpieces. <laughs> <laughs> well, Lovecraft was a bibliophile, and I think it figures that he's, he's writing his style of writing appeals to bibliophiles as well. Of, uh, um, I mean, I've seen this story as well, kind of the, the idea of the lore of the old books, of the rare tome, of um, that any book lover can relate to. <laughs> Uh, of that, you know, hunting down the mysteries. Um, I mean, I think also, I mean, in this story, in a weird, we're, maybe because we're just calling in December, but I also get the feeling, as well as sort of, it's Howard doing Lovecraft, in some ways it feels like Howard doing Dickens as well. Of huh. like, Grimlin was dead. <laughs> dead yeah. as a door knocker, like Mr. Marley. <laughs> he was an evil man. He never did a good thing in his life. You know what I mean? <laughs> Oh, there's that. I mean, it's not. It's not. Uh, you know, Howard. Howard doing Lovecraft. He's still doing Howard. He's not. Mm. He doesn't really have. I don't. I've never seen him do anybody else's style. But he certainly pick. He's a really good at picking things up. And so yeah, that's that's. It is. It, it yeah. I, I didn't think of it as a Christmassy story, but it is sort of of that ilk. It has that sort of Victorian Gothic sort of feel to it, I think. Of, um, Lesson, though. <laughs> mm. Like, there's nothing. 
it's it what's really funny is i was describing this story to a friend of mine and i said you know there's nothing happens in this story other than <laughs> go to the guy's house uh they see the dead body on the table and uh i guess conrad is shocked to see uh him covered by a robe and that the candles are lit and he's really freaked out by that and then there's Another guy shows up in the room, uh, and they do the little ceremony, and then the house burns down, and then they see a giant <laughs> peacock in the sky. <laughs> and that was, was the highlight for me. Yeah, I was wondering about that. Uh, is it what, what's what it was a bat, right? Well, it's a, it's like a bat. It's kind of like a peacock. It's it's uh, it, the symbol shows up on at least three objects. There's there's the the actual will itself, which has the signature of Malactus, I guess. Uh, and then there's like a, maybe the signature is, uh, ends with the, the, the stamp or the ink, <laughs> ink drawing of, of a, yeah, mm. of this whole city in the eight towered evil city in, uh, upper Mongolia or wherever it is. It's somewhere in Asia, right? another, uh, again, a yellow peril story of a certain kind. Except this is just one guy. Um, so let, let's talk about the uh, the the dude who shows up, the guy who's wearing the yellow robe. He's he's got disturbing eyes that burn like I don't know yellow coals or something. What is he? Is he the monster? Well, you can certainly read like that that he's the avatar of. The demon of the god. I mean, um, the fact that he appears in yellow robes, like um, Cthulhu mythos scholars, you link him with Nural Athotep, who, uh, you know, sometimes appears as an avatar called the King in Yellow. Um, uh, my my reading is he is kind of say he's like the uh, the emissary or the essence of the god come to collect. <laughs> It's uh, it, it's interesting. I was thinking, you know, like that they had because it's it's exactly three hundred years later. It must have been like a deal they struck, um, and that that's why the the Asian dude is there is to collect on the deal, right? And that's how he knew that. Uh, what's what's uh, John Grimlin? Uh, there's two Johns. There's John Conrad is also in the story but john grimlin was dead after 300 years and that's the reason that malactus shows up is because he said you know your time's up it's not that he died of a strange disease that he picked up in the east exactly it's that it was you know time is up mm. and dig me a grave i gotta pay my debt which is to have my body taken off into the sky i guess maybe back to asia for Whatever they're going to do to it, <laughs> or some demon larder. So yeah, <laughs> but you know, you'd think if you were a demon, you could find you know more local food. <laughs> you could look for. Why does he have to have his body taken as well? All I, think, I think the idea is is that you know if the demon possesses his mortal remains. He therefore has the soul. <laughs> yeah, the- Which is a bit unclear. I know when I first read this, I thought. Oh, you 
you're just bequeathing, donating your body to to a demon. This is probably a good deal. <laughs> yeah, I mean, but there's like a weird scream, right? When they mm. when the lights go out and they take them, and the body disappears. Yeah, because it is that in the story. There's that sort of reading read like a second time and a bit more closer. There's that inference that although Grimlin is dead, his essence is still in the corpse. Yeah. Um, and that, you know, it's not just the body. It's body and soul being spirited away to the infernal regions or the city, lost city of Koth or wherever. <laughs> yeah, now Koth is a name that he, uh, that Howard's used in, uh, in other other works like I guess in the Conan series and such but I don't think there's a real Koth in Asia I think it's uh, some somehow near Greece I think is that that's my memory but uh, you know the, the real place called Koth but he was not one for, he's not like I said one for paying attention to the details one of the things that he says is that uh, oh, this guy, John Grimlin, he was really into Shintoism. And I'm like, <laughs> what's wrong with Shintoism? And it does come across as a bit of a slur. It gets bundled yeah. in with sorcery, voodoo, and, yeah, he's got voodoo, and Shintoism. And, Cthulhu and Shintoism. It's like, hey, <laughs> he's slamming on the entire Japanese uh, religion there. Which is pretty, I mean, it's pretty innocuous. It's, it's basically... Uh, it's not animism exactly it's like spirit of the each place has spirits mm. right and that's not uh, particularly offensive or scary but I guess at the time the story is written it would be you know it's not like yeah he's got the noxious winds that blow from Yagoth you know that that sounds like it's scary whereas Shintoism <laughs> is like no that's a <laughs> temple on top of a mountain and uh, but I, yeah, guess I, was, it, I was reading it in Wikipedia, and it didn't seem very malicious or anything. No, it seems pretty innocuous. I mean, it's not even particularly... Uh, they don't go around pushing it on you, knocking on your doors. That's It doesn't even have an annoying factor, you know? Mm. So, uh, I, 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 do dig, I do dig what's happening, though, in that he does understand how this layering of... of levels of history even if they are you know sort of you don't look at them too closely um you know he's he has the so let me read this little line here what i cried shaken to my soul conrad this is madness heaped on madness malik Tus, good god no mortal man has ever was ever so named and i'm like yeah that's right that's a really unrealistic name for a guy too. <laughs> um, that is the title of the foul god worshipped by the mysterious Yezides, of, <laughs> they of Mount Alamut, the accursed, whose eight brazen towers rise in the mysterious wastes of deep Asia. Well, Alamut does not sound to me like a uh, deep Asia. That sounds like Turkey or something, right? That's it's uh, The language is... He's sort of conflating. I mean, mm. I... I, I believe the Yezides are a real cult. I, I wouldn't be surprised, but... I don't think it's deep Asia, though, is it? I, I wouldn't have said so. I'd say it's more Middle East, I believe. And okay. certainly the mountain name, say, as you say, sounds more um, Turkish. 
<laughs> but because he doesn't, because he doesn't uh, stop and let you ponder it, it seems all right because he keeps going. <laughs> he says is a dolatish symbol, the brazen peacock, and the Mohammedans who hate his demon worshipping devotees mm. say the essence of evil of all the universe, the prince of darkness, Ariman, the old serpent, just keeps piling it on. <laughs> Satan! And you said Gremlin names these, this mythical demon in his will? It is the truth. That's the right. And then they, they, they get thirsty and go looking for some wine. <laughs> <laughs> He's dead. He doesn't need his wine cellar. Let's help ourselves. <laughs> Basically, it's the middle of the night, right? But uh, I thought, uh, should we make much from the fact that there is no wine? Because I was thinking that maybe that was his way of uh, Gremlin saying, you know, I'm I'm going to be dead on this date. I don't need to buy any more wine. <laughs> but I, it, did, it did cross my mind, because when I was, for this reading, uh, when I was reading it, I, I mean, I was sort of thinking Jacob Marley, and I'm thinking, yeah, I bet he drank all the wine because he knew he was going to die. I bet there's nothing in that house spare. <laughs> It'll have all been used up to that date. <laughs> and and the house burns down, Is it? it but it's not an act. There's like, is it an accident? I don't think so. I mean, they do have candles fl- flopping around all over robes, which is not, you know, the wisest thing. I see it more as the other like, kind of omen, satanic accidents. <laughs> right. But, oh. he, you know, he gives the house to the, um, he leaves all the estate to the demon or something, right? Mm. So it, it's like the way of, it's, it's getting offering or something. Oh, that no one else gets it. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Possibly. They say, well, what what a demon would do with a country estate? I'm I'm not sure, <laughs> but um, in this case, burn it to the ground. Apparently, maybe it's up. the old thing. If you burn it, it then reassembles in the in the afterlife. <laughs> well, that actually that actually fits with more Asian religions, right? Mm. Uh, I'm not sure about Shinto, but <laughs> that's a Chinese uh, traditional belief. You know, your ancestors need money. Mm. You could burn actual money, but why not just send them fake stuff? They can't tell the difference. (laughs) (laughs) It always makes me think that, you know, you've got this sort of underworld or afterlife in which um, ancestors are always in need of stuff. And and then every, you know, seasonally they get sent things by burnt offerings that and it's all like this fake money and they just get angrier and angrier. (laughs) Just, just uh, burn, burn a check, and then if they don't cash yeah. it, you don't lose anything. <laughs> I wonder if that would work. Hmm. But yeah, it seems to be the way to get things to the the other side is to burn them. Um, but that's it's sort of an old an old way. Hmm. I don't know. I, I'm not sure peacocks are that scary either. But I. I <laughs> Well, that, like- that is where he had done some research because there is in these Middle Eastern traditions, they do there are obscure sects that refer to Satan as the peacock angel. Ah, interesting. Uh, because in kind of <clears throat> medieval uh, periods, the peacock symbolized pride, and as we know, Lucifer was cast out of heaven for his pride. Right. Okay. So, so that's coming yeah. together a little. Mm. Which did surprise me, because I know Howard is kind of, well, he has a magpie salt and pepper approach to research. <laughs> and I thought, oh, that's, that's fairly obscure. He dug something up there. I was well, impressed. 
You know, I would be much more like because uh, I I just don't think he had the um, I don't think he had the libraries. I mean, he's living in a small town. He can't mm. call up anything that he wants. He doesn't have the internet. He can't research, right? So um, I'm thinking, you know, Lovecraft. He he was near a big city. Collect books. It seems like he did collect books and he found books somehow. And I believe he even lived in a house with a library. So yeah, yeah. It's much more reasonable for him to do this, but the way Howard seems to have done it is he reads a story that has this element in it, and he just swipes it and puts mm. it in his own thing and says, that's really cool. I'm going to use that. Um, and that's – so I would be much more inclined to think that he didn't look it up, he didn't find it, but that somebody else did, and that he you know, got the benefit of that with uh, his own – his own work, which mm. I, you know, a slamming at all. It's just uh, you got to you got to love it for what it is. Well, I say with with Howard, it was the momentum of the story mm-hmm. that was important. And if he thought this stuff sounded cool, it went in. It didn't matter that they might be might be mixing up names from different periods in history or different continents. But mm-hmm. if, if it fit, if it you know it fitted together in the story to sound good, and you know to to spark the reader's imagination and if it sparked his imagination you know let's get on with it let's do this that was yeah. very much howard's own approach to things i mean i think if if you read a lot of other howard's weird tales you're probably quite surprised that um conrad or his fellow does end up punching out the uh, peacock angel at the end because <laughs> that isn't unknown to happen you know yeah. in other howard stories where demons turn up they get a bit of a licking you know <laughs> what would conan do uh, there's a few of these other mytho- mythos tales where um, tentacled monstrosities get a biff on the bonds, <laughs> rather than the minute it's fading away, they, they're at, you know they're, they're wading in with fists flying. Mm-hmm. It's usually a tough guy in the story, even if mm. it's not going in. Uh, well, he you know he was sell. I'm not sure what market was this in the Weird Tales. I'm not sure what market it was in. Let's see if it says. I think it was Weird Tales. Yeah, it seems like a Weird Tales sort of story. Which, which are not heavy on action. Um, they're heavy on weird. <laughs> but uh, for whatever market, you know, that's that's the one thing he did study, um, is business. And he said, you know, sell what, what, sell what sells. And so he, he wrote romances and westerns and sea stories. He, he wrote whatever would, you know, sell, he hoped. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, there are like lots of boxing stories and such that, uh, you know, there's even some boxing ghost stories. I think there's a, a, a ghost boxer or something. <laughs> um, yeah. So if if those other ones, the I, I I'm not sure if I've read the other Kuroa and Conrad stories, and I think they might turn up individually as well. Um, but if we were talking about where what happens in them? I think that that would be most likely determined by what magazine it was published. Mm. If it's published in action stories. It will be a bop on the nose. Yeah. <laughs> but weird tales. It, it's okay to just mm. see the guy being torn off into the sky. Also, these guys are repeating characters. I believe so. Yes. Oh. Um, and I think another one that I was thinking about. Uh, was Old Garfield's Heart, which I'm not, 
I can't remember that well, but I remember it being kind of creepy, like that in the same way. Oh, you know, the other one that this is kind of similar to is the thing on the roof, which is another uh, one. Tam, I think you you spotted the uh, the Marvel adaptation of uh, Digmino Grave, which is very beautiful, I think. Um, you know, it's a little bit condensed, but it's yeah, the nice. back kind of looks like a man in this at the end. Yeah, it's it, there's no evidence of the peacock right in this in the story, but um, yeah, it's it's much more much more demonic than it is uh, anything else, I guess. But it, it's it's not it's not a bad adaptation at all. Um, but the thing on the roof is kind of similar, and there actually is a line in here that is, I think you know, used in, in the thing on the roof. So when they go into the, into the, into the house of, um, Gremlin, they hear something. I think when they come in, that's not, let's see. That's wings. Uh, they, they heard something on the roof. So the thing on the roof, the story is, um, is is uh, nineteen thirty two? Dig me no grave is nineteen thirty seven. So yeah, it wouldn't be surprising that he, he recycled it. It's it both both were in weird tales, I think. Yeah. Uh, let's see if I can spot that spot. In the meantime, while I'm looking for that, Tam, why don't you ask our wonderful guest, Mr. Jim Moon, about his new collection of horror weird stories. Hey, Jim, I hear you have a book coming out. <laughs> yes, I do. It's uh, available currently for Kindle. There will be a paper edition and an audiobook edition in the new year. Um, but it's a little anthology of seven classic old ghost stories from some well-known old masters like M.R. Um, James and Bram Stoker, but also some more obscure authors um, and authors you might not necessarily associate with ghost stories or just E. Nesbitt, who wrote all those wonderful children's books. Um, it's, it's a very old-school anthology, like the ones I grew up in, which means every story has a big full-plate illustration with it, and there's little sort of graphics in the text, and each story has an introduction and an afterword, and there's footnotes to illuminate some of the more obscure details that turn up in these vintage tales. Well, what's the title? So there's seven of specters. <laughs> okay. And you, and you actually drew the illustrations and wrote the introductions too. Yes, I did. Right. I did. Uh, uh, they're photographs uh, uh, as well as they're sort of combination, right? Yeah. They're, um, I'm not sure what you'd entirely call it. It's kind of <laughs> photoshoppery. <laughs> so <laughs> I think of it as um, you're the mainly kind of treated photographs I've taken with bits added and, it's painted into them and um, came out quite it's well. Very, I think. very, very subtle. You know, one of the first ones that I spotted of yours was um, a long time ago, the Horla. Oh, yes. Uh, mm. And you no, know, I just spotted what you did to it. Mm. And I'm like, how the hell didn't I see this? But I think it's the size. <laughs> so if you, if you, Tam, if you type in uh, the Horla, and uh, Malpasson, if you can spell that. And then... Um, yeah, we did a read-along of that. Right, but when Jim did his... Um, you did one for your podcast, right? Yes, that's right, yeah. Uh, um, he made a little... You're really good with the putting uh, art in. 
And I'm like just looking at it and saying, yeah, it's just a, uh, it's just a pile of books. <laughs> right? It's a pile of books on this thing, and I guess that's in the story. And I was like, well, it's not that great. But um, now I'm looking at it, and I say, holy crap, how did I not see the, the Horla there? There's a Horla in the back. It's hard doing an illustration for an invisible monster. <laughs> it, especially when your audience isn't even smart enough to clue in that there is an invisible monster there. But I, I added uh, to the post I did on the Horla, I added the the Lind Ward ones, which are much more obvious. And, you know, there's another one where, very famous one where he's looking in the mirror and he sees the, the Horla in the mirror, right? Um, mm. But, yeah, I, I, I think you're almost being too subtle because <laughs> I'm like, I don't see any of the stuff you put into it until I, I have it pointed out to me. <laughs> but the, on the Seven of Spectres cover, you were saying that there's a skull there. And yeah, it's just very subtly. There's this. Only, yeah, only if I look deep into it do I see mm. the skull. It is there. Yeah, it's there. Yeah. It's kind of the idea of it once you just, once you do see it, you'll never unsee it. And yeah, I, guess I like the idea of one day someone just looking and going, "Shit!" Yeah, <laughs> has that always been there? Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, the thing That's... with e-books, you can do some wonderful things with them, and uh, I am wondering if I can make one with haunted pictures. <laughs> haunted pictures, <laughs> pictures that might not be the same every time you look at them. <laughs> Well, I'll have, to, I'll have to look how the code works and I can get it to work you know, for all platforms. <laughs> if you got an animated GIF or something? Yeah, the animated GIF where it's the same frame for, you know, 5,000 and then it changes subtly and then goes back to being <laughs> normal. Straight, straight out of Harry Potter. Is that is that a Harry Potter thing? Yeah, well, the, the paintings move in the school. Yeah. Oh, yeah. all right. <laughs> so uh, I would say that's an interesting point. Um what do you, what do you think about uh, J.K. Rowling? What she does, is it is it? Because I I read the first book. I th- I thought it was very well done. I didn't want to read the second one, um, but I also thought, oh, this is for kids, um, and the, not in the same way that you know I think uh, Howard was uh, for a teen. I I literally think it's set for an even younger age. What have you read the uh, Harry Potter uh, book? Or books? Uh, I've read them all several times. As um, oh really? I mean, what what I find interesting is the books grow up as the characters do. It, mm-hmm. It's still they're still written accessibly, but the later books, I mean, they're longer, and people go, "Oh, she just got away with no editing," and it's kind of yeah, shut up. You don't like long books, admit it. They scare you. Move on. I hear this all the time about <laughs> people, authors who write thick books. They need an editor. No, they just write long books. Deal with it. Um, but well, the you, certainly... there's, deep, there's more complicated themes and there's uh, when I read them again as a sequence there's things she puts in the first book which come to fruition four books later she, you know, she planned this out as a seven book sequence and she stuck said that seven books done and when you go back you can see themes you know being seeded early on in a, you know, in a very clever fashion. <laughs> um, but what yeah, they do. do you think she's coming out of? Uh, I think I think it's, it's these, these classic words. children's adventure, really, and sort yeah. of British humour as well. Because it's kind of I think I can't remember someone someone said I can't remember who it was, but said the uh, the clever thing about Harry Potter books is 
there's, they've got enough imagination and the world's consistent and well thought out enough to appeal to fantasy fans. Mm. But they're written with enough humour for people who are normally torn up by fantasy. They can actually get into it. Mm. And I think that that sums, sums up. That's why she's so big is because there is that humour and um, it's not completely po-faced and there is comedy in them running through them. But at the same the, time, there's enough of a world to be really appealing that people want to, you know, immerse themselves in it like they do with Tolkien. But she, what, what, what I really appreciate about that first book was that she really did know sort of the, what she, she wasn't like a lot of the writers who started writing fantasy after her renaissance of fantasy is that she was actually interested in this sort of the traditions and, you know, goblins, you know, they have a certain place and, uh, you know, all of the, the different traditions of fantasy. She, she obviously was familiar with, with them, but I don't see her as coming out of one particular, you know, she didn't say, "Ah, I'm, I'm doing Tolkien. Because it's not Tolkien. It's not even close to Tolkien. Uh, other than, you know, they've got wizards. Uh, but, you know, Tolkien's wizards are nothing like her wizards, right? No, I mean, she's close to, say, like, like, like E. Nesbitt um, and C.S. Lewis. Right. Who, wrote, who did write fantasies, but there were adventure stories, or family adventure stories, um, rather than exercise. I can say like world building and myth making like say Howard or Tolkien or later Moorcock um, but it's also she's drawing on a situation of school stories of humorous school stories like the Jennings right. books like Molesworth like St. Trinian's whatever, yeah. yeah there's, there's that, that, that side to it as well because um, I mean especially in, in British fiction um, in comics and in literature and even TV and films there is the school story about the uh, the kids at boarding school who have jolly japes. And <laughs> yeah, there's even uh, Rupert was one of the books I had when I was a kid. You know the Rupert books. Oh yeah, a, yeah, that's the teddy bear that goes yeah. to school and mm. he's got a Chinese classmate who's like I don't know a badger or something. And uh, yeah, that was it was a, I I love the levels on that and uh, that was actually the closest thing I could think to. To I mean, it, it's obviously it's got anthropomorphic animals, but uh, <laughs> that's not in in Harry Potter. But well, it's it, the it's, same. It's the same sort of coziness, humor, and um, a whimsical yeah. approach. But at the same time, it can be dark. Uh, it's got the three layers. It's got the mm. the uh, the cuteness of the dialogue layer. There's the the poetic rhyming layer, and then there's the plain description. Mm. Um, and I, I think that's why adults were liking. Harry Potter was is they can appreciate some parts of it. The kids can appreciate the adventures parts of it, you know, without knowing, you know, why Voldemort is a good name mm. uh, for a villain. They can understand it just intuitively. Yeah. Whereas I'm reading and I'm saying, oh, she's so smart. That's you mm. know, underground death. Oh, I got it. That's a good name for him, right? It's literally the flight of death. Yeah, it's yeah. <laughs> very, um. very. She's very clever. And I, I really appreciate it. What, I, what I'm strange, what I found strange, though, especially when I was, I, I went to see one of the later movies. For, I was forced to go, uh, book seven. I hadn't seen, I hadn't, I hadn't read any of the books uh, after the first one. But I went to see 
book seven part uh, book seven part one the movie. Mm-hmm. I guess there was two parts for that, and it struck me that it was it in the same way that that one worked, the first one worked as well, which is they are actually structured uh, very around scenes. Mm-hmm. There, there she's she sets up a scene, and then there's that scene they deal with that, and then there's another scene. And they there's you know they get into this little mini adventure and they 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 solve that and then there's this you know so a book would be like eight or nine big scenes, and then there would be you know sort of the the plot flowing through those. But each one of those scenes is like a is like a set, you know, a movie set where the characters have to solve this puzzle. You know, there's the room full of keys and there's the the uh, I don't know the Cerberus dog and mm-hmm. all the sort of the the problem of that scene that needs to be set and that was a little bit more like talking uh, well the thing uh, with Rowling's writing is that um because she's coming out very much drawing on this old tradition that what makes the books readable and this is a, an element of their success is the fact that she does construct the stories around set pieces and it kind of you could serialize these books very easily by, you know, quite naturally by the chapter breaks. You could, you know, break yeah, it, it like into as many parts as you like. And I, that, that's what makes them popular, because it is that page-turning serial aspect of what happens mm-hmm. next, what happens next. And, <laughs> mm-hmm. you you know, you're always building up to another big exciting bit, and then there's another one around the corner. <laughs> mm-hmm. I, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm not sure I'm going to continue reading past the first one, because... I'm not much for series, but I, I really, uh, I did appreciate that she had a, a very, um, it, you know, there are these authors who they really do have their own unique voices, and Howard's one of them, Lovecraft's one of them, and I think she is one too. She's got a way of putting together uh, all these, you know, di- there's nothing radically new in what she's done, but the way she put it together, it's, it feels like an old classic. Yeah, yeah. As if that timeless sort of feel to it. Mm-hmm. Um, hey, Jim, did you read her mainstream novel? Uh, I've not yeah. yet. Um, I'm hoping. I'm hoping Santa's bringing that for me in his sack. <laughs> That's yeah. on my list. As um, I mean, I know he's probably going to. You know, it did get bad reviews or mixed reviews, shall we? I, I read say, the beginning. You know, it's well, pretty heavy. Inevitable. Like. Uh, like a guy dies of a stroke or something in the very yeah beginning. yeah it's, it's not going to be a happy read. Well, no, you know it's a grown-up novel, but it's you know yeah. darkly comic, and uh, you know before having read the Potter books, it's kind of I, I can see her pulling off this kind of sort of sort of dark, sort of twisted sort of story about the inter like, you know like if you've seen Hot Fuzz about that kind of mm-hmm. beneath the respectable little english town there's a seething hotbed of, that was great actually I, I forgot how that's such a fun move fun little movie i don't think it did very well but um yeah it, it was a it was nice to see that it, it is a british movie even though it's it's an american style comedy right with all the action and such it's it's very i don't know i think it was filmed in britain right oh yeah i mean the, the idea is that the edgar wright said he was you know around a little village and the idea was kind of, what if Lethal Weapon happened here? Yeah. <laughs> and it was colliding that kind of little, little English village story with sort of the big, dumb American <laughs> sort of cop blow everything up. 
Yeah. And it's, you know, that's, you know, it's like clashing those two things together. You know, that That was pretty funny. The same way in Shaun of the Dead is kind of what what would happen if Dawn of the Dead was happening in a a little suburb of London, (laughs) you know, to English people. They wouldn't be going to the mall. They'd be going, oh, shall we go to the pub and wait it out? (laughs) This has been the SFF Audio Podcast. Please join us at www.sffaudio.com.